0: So we're just going to get right into our talk. So when when addressing the so what factor about the title of our talk, which the title is Lessons About Training Black Clergy in Mental Health, What Do We Know? One could ask oneself why is that even important? Why, Why even talk about mental health training for clergy in general and African American clergy in particular? So um, as far as the problem statement, the literature, uh, those of us who are familiar with this literature know that it consistently shows that African Americans are underrepresented in traditional mental health treatment. For example, the National Survey of American Life found that only 10% of all black respondents use some form of mental health services within a given year. And um, that particular study showed that of those, only one-third of those meeting ESM criteria for some type of disorder used formal health services. Um, and we know also from the literature that when given a choice, African Americans turn to informal counseling supports, such as clergy, more often than they turn to traditional counseling. Um, the Nat- National Comorbidity Survey Found that clergy were contacted for help about one-fourth of the time or 25% of the time, which was more often than primary care physicians. It was also more often than psychiatrists, which were only contacted one-sixth of the time. So people choose clergy for a number of reasons. It's because they're more familiar with clergy. It's because clergy don't charge fees. Um, It's because fewer stigmas are involved. Uh, with going to a clergy person for help. Uh, clergy, you know, we know that they've been dealing with emotional problems for decades. Um, and, uh, there's a quote from Religion in the Lives of African Americans uh, that's by uh, Taylor Chatters eleven, and it states that African American ministers are an important and vital resource for individuals in the African American community clergy have played an important role in spearheading the provision of services to their congregations. In spite of this, though, there's little empirical knowledge about um, a number of questions. So, okay, okay. so, so these questions um, come up. So first of all, you know, what, what do black pastors believe that their mental health training needs are? Do they even feel that they have mental health training needs at all? Um, secondly, how do we reach black pastors with, with with a training that's not only effective, but also um, that resonates with their types of ways or their desired way they learn? And third, um, what are the best ways for mental health practitioners to collaborate with black surgeons? So these are some of the questions that um, we would like to address and answer. Dr. Dye?
1: I'm going to just talk a little bit about the significance. When researching, um, when you're trying to look at research that is related to training clergy in mental health issues, you want to understand a couple of things. One of them is that according to the recommendations that are increasing cultural competence in regards to how to approach African American clergy in relation to Mental health training. Now, in this training today, we're using African American and Black interchangeably. And also, it promotes a culturally competent, um, um, stronger connection to our social work ethics in regards to cultural competence and social justice. All right, so what are we going to do in this workshop today? We are going to learn about how our research um, gives a context. for what we're talking about. We're going to get into finding strategies that work in training clergy, and we're going to be increasing understanding the barriers that impact collaborations with clergy. In addition to, we're gonna rethink how we approach African American clergy in regard to implementing mental health training, and how we design training that will be effective in this process, especially in Christian contexts. And lastly, we want to invite you. It's a smaller audience today. We want to invite you into a conversation when we have done with the formal part of our presentation so we can discuss what concerns you might have, what your research is, what your experience has All right, so I'm gonna start with talking about my research. It's a qualitative study, I already approved. And the purpose of the study was to improve understanding African American clergy perspectives from their perspectives of how they address partner violence in their churches. The participants were eight African American clergy that included six men and two women, three of whom were immigrants, and two of whom have experience working in the court system. The denominations represented are African Methodist Episcopal, Baptist, Full Gospel, Church of God, and that was self-identified. Pentecostal denomination, Seventh-day Adventist, and Presbyterian. Now the study provided data in several categories, some of which I think is very important to understand what's going on with clergy perspectives in relation to IPV. IPV is intimate partner violence. The categories of information included their counseling process, um, the ways that they think about partner violence and talk about it from the pulpit, their pulpit commentary. And um, just church ambivalence in relation to it. Now, more specific findings include that clergy engage in clinically sound practices. This is not information as widely known, and I think it's very important to emphasize that information today. They, the practices include beginning with a client is not rushing the recovery process. Basic triage, which is needs assessment and case management and advocacy. Now what's important to know about this is that this, these strategies are not being implemented uniformly across the board. So you're not going to find a full range of all of these strategies being implemented by African-American clergy in all places, And you'll find it in pockets, and that's important to know. Um, the findings that are important to today's study are more specific to their concerns around mental health training and the ways that they were prepared to address mental health issues in their congregations. Now, I also want to add that while clergy are interested in getting mental health training, they're not interested in becoming counselors. They're not looking to a therapists. They just want help in order to do this and they want to build up their understanding of how to address this issue
2: which is a deficit barrier okay. in your own insurance. Dr. King? Excuse me. Is, that, is, there a, I, I is there a reference? Is that reference you that you just made? Is there any of you just becoming counsel? Is that that comes directly
1: from my research.
2: Okay. Which is? Is it published?
1: It is published. It is in, um, oh no, Would you know? Is it in the bibliography? It is in the
2: bibliography. Oh, anything. Yes. Thank you. Do you think of it? Let me know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Journal of
3: (laughs) Excellence
2: and New Journal of Religion and Spirituality. Religion and Spirituality. Yes.
1: This is one of those days where the minute you think about it, it flies out of (laughs) your mouth. And it was published in 2010.
0: Okay, so I'm going to continue the discussion about our research. So um, so Dr. Dyer is talking about the research that uh, pertaining to this subject, and I'm going to talk about some of the studies that I've done that pertain to this particular, um, pertain to pastors. So the first project that I did, it was a qualitative study, and what it did is it examined the sermon content of 10 sermons um, from African-American Pentecostal pastors. And the reason why I wanted to do that is on what I did is I engaged in a content analysis of um, audio tape sermons. Um, and there were 10 Pentecostal pastors from California, Texas, and New Mexico. And the goal was to find out if black pastors spoke about mental health treatment in over the pulpit, and also if they uh, spoke about depression over the pulpit, and if so, what ways did they speak about depression? So for that particular study, um, some of the findings that I, that I received from that study suggested that at least in the African American Pentecostal tradition, um, depression is a moral weakness or depression was considered to be a moral weakness that um, could be countered with more active praise or, uh, and another thing that, was that I found through that study is that saints, which are um, true men and women of God. Um, don't wallow in tears but instead they rely on Jesus and a third thing that I found from that study was that um, the use of psychiatrists and psychotropic medications was frowned upon in the sermon they said that's not the best choice, it's not the first so that's what I found through that study then I did a second study um, and this was a quantitative study where I surveyed 204 pastors in California Mm -hmm. and The sample was a random sample of pastors of Protestant Christian faith. Um, They were heads of churches of over 26 different denominations. And the pastors that self-selected to participate in that study were either primarily uh, uh, Caucasian or African-American due to the language um, capabilities of the study, Uh, with an English-only study. Um, The goal of the study, and it was called the Clergy Depressive Counseling Survey, was to find out how pastors define depression and how they counsel depression in their congregations. And so some of the findings that um, I got from that study suggested that white pastors in the study, they more readily agreed with statements that um, depression was a biological mood disorder. On the other hand, the um, Black pastors more readily agreed that depression was a moment of weakness in dealing with trials and tribulations. Um, also, um, there were some differences based upon denominations. So mainline Protestants, um, they didn't believe in the spiritual, What well, they did. They did believe in the spiritual, well, actually, they did not believe in the spiritual causes of depression. They more often believed in the biological causes of depression, mainline, mainline Protestants. Um, On the other hand, Pentecostals and non-denominational pastors believe more in spiritual causes of depression. So the findings suggest that there are some racial, there are some denominational differences that might shape how pastors define depression. So um, we have to keep that in mind when we're working with pastors of different cultures. Um, And then the third project the, this is in progress, and, and although I don't have the results yet, I just wanted to briefly mention it. Um, it's a phenomenal phenomenological study. Um, it's funded by the Templeton Foundation, and what uh, it's going to do is we're going to examine the lived experiences of uh, 40 pastors—20 in Los Angeles, 20 in Chicago—to um, find out what their lived experiences are of counseling in the pastoral context. So we'll ask about um, what are their struggles, what are their um, strengths, um, what, are, um, what, what are their views of purpose and calling, and how does that fit into their, the piece of counseling, when they do counseling. Um, and so information from that study is going to help to discover like in what ways that seminaries and other uh, theological education has prepared them for counseling in, in urban settings. So um, based on Jacqueline's results, based on my findings, and also based on the literature, um, we can begin to discuss what a viable mental health training program might look like. And again, we're, we're, um, we're going to have a discussion later on today about it, and we want your input. But um, just based upon those three things, what we, we have uh, found is that um, the empirical articles that are about this topic usually make two assumptions. Um, the, first, the first thing that they assume is that pastors are unequipped to handle mental health issues. So that's the, the literature um, often assumes that. Second thing that they assume is that, um, that pastors are not responsive to the idea of being trained. So when you look at the literature across the board, uh, the majority of it is, you know, more pessimistic or more negative. But in reality, we need to find out if pastors really do want to be trained. So um, one thing that we have found in our studies is that pastors definitely are willing to be trained. Um, in my study of 204 pastors, um, three-fourths of the pastors um, surveyed that they would be interested in further training if it was available okay to them. Um, Jacqueline's qualitative study also found that pastors discussed the desire to be trained, so they, they do want to be trained. Also, uh, one thing that I found in my study is that statistically more pastors um, heading congregations in lower socioeconomic um, neighborhoods and more minority pastors were interested in training than um, white pastors in those in higher socioeconomic um, neighborhoods. Um, so actually 90% or 9 out of 10 pastors in, in the study that uh, I did were interested in further training. Um, so that's it's important to have training programs that are available for minority pastors and these pastors that live in the lower socioeconomic neighborhoods. Um, programs geared toward these pastors have to be tailored to their unique needs. So there's some problems right now with the present day, Types of training that we have out there, um, and when I say problems, um, it's fine for us. You know, it's fine for us as practitioners, it's fine for us as social workers, but uh, we need to rethink the uh, way that we do training for for other populations. So, for instance, specifically pastors. Um, so practitioners in the mental health field, uh, they kind of make assumptions about the ways to approach clergy for training. Um, Usually, the approach fits a medical model. You know, so we've often been taught this medical model. Um, and this is where the expert decides what the non-expert needs to learn. And this is where the expert is giving um, or, or, or passing on information to the non-expert. Um, that, that in turn impacts approaches to collaboration. So that may be a problem if we, if we approach pastors that way. Um, secondly, the structure. Of continuing education opportunities that we have, you know how we have to go through CEU units and the way that we get trained. Um, You know, a lot of times that type of same type of training setting has been exported to so to clergy without knowledge of of whether that particular approach is liable or not for them. Um, This in turn affects the way that clergy mental health training are structured. So. A viable training program um, should have several characteristics. Uh, first of all, first of all, it has to be flexible. It, it has to uh, be flexible enough to serve the needs of clergy at varying levels of experience and formal training. Now, one thing I found in my study is that there was um, a wide range, a diverse range of theological types of education and and secular types of education. So you range from PhDs with secular PhDs, you yeah. know, to um, all the way down to you know almost no no secular training. You range from theological PhDs all the way down to no no training. So um, so that particular program that, that anybody creates would need to be um, very flexible. Secondly, it needs to accommodate uh, varying religions and cultural viewpoints. So that that's a challenge, but that's something that needs to happen. Um, third, it needs to serve inner city and suburban and rural complications, um, you know, a variety of geographical locations so they have to build different needs. Um, third, I mean, next it has to accommodate um, the diverse socioeconomic um, needs, the racial needs, the ethnic composition. And forget it, still have to have, it still has to have a piece in it that, that it has to be unit. It needs to be able to unify clergy on some point um, on common
1: themes in order to create community. Dr. Guyon? So then we come to what are the preferred strategies that clergy would like to see mental health organizations use across the social workers as mental health practitioners. They would like to see us come to meetings. They want us to have short meetings because their time is a little bit intensely uh, recognize how busy they can be. And because of that, you want to also go to the meeting that they tend to be for. That's going to be very important. Mm-hmm. Distill the salient points of what it is you're trying to convey into understandable and um, accessible formats. Um, also, make it short, keep it into 20 minute segments. And if had that that can be easily reproduced and sent into the church buildings. Very important. Because that reduces the amount of effort that the pastor and the leadership might have to put into disseminating that information. That makes it much more readily available for them to distribute. Now, one of the concerns that clergy have with the strategies of we use, one of them is not building partnerships over time. What they they have found is that agencies will do outreach and coordinating efforts that are around the agency's task force ideas or that are based on crises. So we blow in, blow up, and blow out, which is kind of what we hear evangelists do, except we are not evangelizing, we are not maintaining the relationships as a result. What they see is we come in, we kind of dictate what it is that they need to do or the churches need to do and then we're gone. And pastors are looking for relationships to be built over time and maintained. Um, they're also concerned that community agencies are not communicating in a way that allows the pastors to be on the same page. They kind of talk over their heads in, in some ways. And when we're forming coalitions, we're forming those coalitions without necessarily including pastors and churches in the development of them. So again, if clergy are invited to existing coalitions, it's an afterthought. Mm -hmm. But in the planning process, we may not invite them as part of the process and that's very important. All right, now we're not gonna talk about what clergy concerns are without talking about the ways that they have identified for themselves that they can complicate the issue. One of them is that the pastors may not have the same commitment to the mental health issue that you've identified. So we might come with a topic that we feel, believe is very important and we want them to participate. And yet that particular person that you're speaking to, that leader, may not have identified that issue with the same level of urgency. And so that partnership, that effort may not flourish. Another concern is the possibility that the leadership might have that we come with an agenda that is not going to be in the same theological lines as what is being preached for that congregation. So how do I know that what you're saying to my people is something that I can trust that will support your faith process? Mm -hmm. And also there is the business in the church and the business of the church. And many of the pastors, especially those in low socioeconomic regions and and communities, are doing second jobs and maybe even third jobs. So their availability is very limited as well. Very important things that can complicate it. And some of these things are not specifically designed to thwart collaborative efforts. They just are, and we've got to find ways to really think about how our approaches account for this. All right, so now our solutions. How do we really begin to address all of these things that we've just identified? Don't stop your outreach. chambers. Don't stop trying to communicate. Even if the conversations with the minister heads reveal practices that you might find not to be clinically sound, one thing I found in my research, were that pastors, and this is research again related to intimate partner violence, the partners tended to interview the couple conjoined in couples that have identified domestic violence. Now, that is not a condoned practice plan. It's definitely not condoned in the DV field. But it comes from a place where the pastors want each partner to know that you are careful, that we want to make sure that your concerns are heard. So it's coming from a loving place. It is not coming from a potentially destructive place what we know of the potential clinic that it can create. Some of the response to that within the community is to stay away from people that are engaging in those kinds of practices. We can't let understanding that certain practices are not, shall we say, best clinical practices stop our outreach efforts. Very important that in the relationship we begin the process of transformation. learn to speak their language. We may come in without an understanding of the symbols, of the references, of even the theological perspectives. Now we don't have to become theologians, but these are things that we can find out in conversation. Very easily. And we say to the pastors, the leader that we're speaking to. You know, I want to collaborate with your church, but there are a number of things that I don't understand from your perspective. So maybe that's part of our exchange. I bring information that's helpful and useful to you, and you help me understand ways that can speak to your congregation and to your leaders that is viable and acceptable. And use that friendly language, make it accessible. Address power equity issues in the collaboration. Again, this speaks to the comment that Dr. Payne had made that we come in with a medical model, we come in as the experts. That's. Process undermines the fact that we are talking to people who are experts in their fields. They are experts in what they've been doing forever. Um, and I say forever, um, considering. If you're doing this work for more than 10 years, then you are an expert at what you have been doing. And we are approaching pastors that have been doing this work for at least that time. Younger pastors will definitely speak to the places in which they have been. That have been doing it for 10 years or more consider themselves solidified in the field. And so their expertise needs to be acknowledged, recognized, and engaged in the process. Conversation, addressing that, and not approaching solely as experts, but as partners. Identify points of congruence. And incongruence in these strategies that you are bringing to the table. There are going to be some that very clearly fit with the theological perspectives of the clergy. There are going to be some that don't. And when they don't, have conversations about them. It is not that a strategy that appears to be incongruent cannot be used, it is just that you need to make sure that you and the leadership are on the same page. And in that process, you can discuss ways that those strategies can be modified to fit your needs. And address clergy apprehensions about your intentions. Now it may be that the initial partnership process is going very smoothly, no concerns at all. But at some point in the exchange, a strategy is identified or presented that might present a little apprehension for the church leadership. When that's the case, just talk about it. Have a conversation, keep it open and ongoing. Build relationships outside of crises, outside of targeted projects. Very important because that allows there to be more grace for when you're trying to get a special project or a special um, effort done that may be coming just from your agency and have whatever conversations you can to minimize assumptions about the training that clergy might need. So again, this speaks to the comment that Dr. Payne had made, we come in with our sense of expertise, but we don't really ask the pastors, is this the kind of training that you're looking for? This is part of the conversation we need to make. Now these things might seem in some ways are invasive, but
0: we're not doing them. Dr. I just talked about you know, some of these, the, the solutions. And so I'm just going to talk to you about some of the structural solutions. So first of all, like I have said before, the traditional educational format is not going to work. Um, it, we just need to know that those, the, the way that we got taught as mental health professionals going to master's program or you know however we got taught, um, those same traditional the formats don't work. Um, they're not the best fit for pastors who are financially, you know, and temporally tied to their congregation. with they, not they work. and so um, there needs to be a conceptual framework developed that uh, that needs to be decided upon even prior to going into, you know, training of these pastors. Um, but whatever framework that we decide to use, um, the curriculum needs to be tailored to the faith community's paradigm. It needs to be tari- uh, tailored to their ways of knowing um, and their experiences. so when we're developing a conceptual framework for our mental health training program for clergy, um, again, we have to back up from some of our own assumptions. We have to deconstruct our assumptions that we make as traditional clinicians. Um, we already talked about the medical model. Um, we didn't talk about, about um, psychological nomenclature. But, you know, we are, um, you know, we are tied to our own psychological nomenclature, and we know it and we have a lot of acronyms that we use. Pastors have, you know, no idea about the nomenclature that we use. Um, they, on the other hand, have a completely different language. So we, we need to speak on, the, on their level on their language. I'm saying that our, our language is better than their language. It's just a different language. Um, when I when I did this study with um, pastors to find out how they talked about depression off the pulpit, um, they use words like boo-hooing. They use words like um, you know uh, you know sad. You know they use other words besides the, you know, the words that we use, and that's you know that's just a small snippet of you know the language differences that we have. So, we need to make sure that we're speaking their language. And then, um, you know, again, like I said, the majority of ministers are dissatisfied with the traditional workshops. And um, there are some workshops out there, there are some programs out there that um, attempt to um, bring information as far as mental health to, to clergy. You know, in fact, I've been, you know, the past month, been traveling to, to different um, programs to kind of see how they're set up. But, um, you know, they appreciate some of that, that information, but at the same time, you know, like what you said, um, just shooting um, some information at the home or a weekend or shooting information on an eight-hour an eight seminar um, is not going to change, you know, the nature of what's going on in their own, you know, communities or in their congregations. So what, they, what they're going to need is um, they, they need knowledge that directly applies to what they're going through in their own congregations. They need knowledge that's going to directly apply to the day-to-day problems that they face. And so another um, structural issue is that travel away from the church for a lot of pastors is difficult. So the training needs to be convenient. It needs to be brought to them instead of, um, again, us having a training that um, that, that they need to come to. I I went to a training I think just um, a couple of days ago and it was a wonderful training for, and it was for um, pastors, but it was in um, a suburb that was like 40 miles away, you know, from the city. And, I'm, and I'm, in, I'm in Chicago, and and even I got lost, you know. I mean, it's like even I had a hard time finding a place. So I was thinking, well, you know, how many pastors that don't live in this area are going to be able to travel and go to this? So, um, We need to make sure that it's convenient. We need to bring it to them. And then ideally there um, there should be uh, incorporated in the design. There should be some small group discussions. There should be um, some integrated teaching around case material back and forth. Again, it should be um, practice material that pertains to what they're going through. Um, It should be some denominational specificity. Um, involved, uh, depending on what, you know, what denomination they're from. And it may not necessarily even be denominational. It could just be um, sort of a general type of, um, um, you know, like say a uh, group of Pentecostals or a group of, um, you know, mainline Protestants or whatever as opposed to, you know, specific denominations. But at any rate, it needs to be specific enough to increase comfort for that pastor. Um, so that, it, you know, it, w- it won't feel completely foreign to them. Um, it, it needs to be a place where they feel comfortable sharing with other pastors in that same arena. So ideally, um, if, they, if it's created, it should uh, create a sense of community amongst pastors, hopefully. And, um, and again, a, a clinically oriented case format would be best. Um, You know, a lot of times we've we've learned, or I know I've learned with vignettes or case vignettes, um, you know, in order to diagnose or in order to, you know, to be able to determine signs and symptoms of mental illness. And case vignettes were, um, videos were, um, you know, things that, again, pertain to that individual's um, issues that that they deal with every day.
1: Oh.
3: Can
2: I ask a question. Sure. Like your bullet point where you said most ministers decide like private traditional conference method of learning. Can you be a little bit more specific about what do you mean by traditional conference more? Sure. Um, so there's
0: there's certain types of conferences. You know, like for instance, this this is a, this is a traditional type of conference, right? You'll have an um, annual convention. Once a year, you know, people will come for, you know, three days and they'll get training, Um, you know, snippets of training. Um, That's one type of um, example. And another type of example is what I I was saying as far as um, continuing education units. Like for for people who are, you know, social workers and licensed clinical social workers or whatever, they need to to go out and get, like these 36 hours of continuing education units a year and the way that's structured is they will go to um, wherever, a hospital or wherever it's um, being held, and they would stay there for eight hours and they would learn something about domestic violence and then by the end of that they get a certificate and then they go on in every way. It doesn't work um, because, you know, they need ongoing training. They may need, maybe say, maybe it may be, and I don't know that it's the number yet but maybe they need 12 weeks of training um, but but structured in a different way where you know where it would be um, on ongoing training but again it would be maybe partly web-based partly um, you know partly where they would meet in a group I don't know but but at any rate they they're not they're not coming to those types of trainings you know when you when they hold those trainings they're not coming
1: and I have a thought about one as well. I mean, imagine when we were learning all of this material. It was foreign language to us. So we are now presenting this material in a training to people whose field of expertise is very divergent from ours. It's going to be difficult to take it all in. And then, now that I've got a material that I'm not sure what it's really telling me, I've got to apply it to my situation that they didn't speak to it so those are other considerations as well when we're talking about confidence
0: and I'll give you another example Um, I just went to a training I think it was last couple weeks ago and it was you know these are innovative trainings they're not very it's hard to find these trainings where they're intersecting mental health and and clergy but this particular training was um, by a chaplain's program for the VA and so um that program was trying to teach clergy on how to deal with you know, veterans in their, in their um, communities and that type of thing and what type of um, like PTSD, what types of uh, issues that might come up in the community. Um, and it was a, a great training, but again, you had to get there. And secondly, um, you know, they used the information at you, and that's it. So, you know, there's no follow up with the pastors. There's, you know, no way of knowing that how they integrate the material. So, there has to be a different way.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: So, when you're talking about lessons learned, basically, we've got to learn how to navigate the community gate points from the perspective of the gatekeepers.
0: Yeah, and and as as I mentioned before, um, you know, we need to expand the way we think. We need to expand our paradigms. Um, we need to expand our own epistemologies, our own worldview as deaf practitioners in order to reach um, pastors.
1: And with that, what we would like to do is open up this process even more for additional questions and for conversation because your own experiences are very valuable to this process.
0: Now, slide. Um, when we say in a discussion we, again, we don't have all the answers what we would love to do is is know what your views are about how how a a mental health training program could be created
1: that could be really viable I'm a Floridian who's moved to Tennessee and uh, I think regionally We have different needs in different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. Moving to Tennessee, there's a very relational model where I can have the ear of my pastor who has influence over other pastors. Two vignettes of things that have happened Mm -hmm. suicide in our church. Mm -hmm. But through relationship building with
0: my pastor, he's devastated. We're all devastated, but he looks for a referral for me, what to do. And it's easy
1: for me to refer my colleagues who are experts in the field to come in to debrief the whole congregation. I see my role as not providing mental health, but in relationship, teaching him,
0: in conversation about things that I've seen in the field and how they play out in a congregation, the needs that we have. And the other thing is, he invites, not because I asked him to, but because he has
1: learned in relationship. He takes it to the ministerial association. He provides his own conference, recharge for other pastors in the right. region who flood the parking lot for a day of training from other pastors because now the pastor has shared
0: that information to them and they are training each other. That's right.
1: And that's a really important comment that as we build the relationships, we help the pastors to be able to educate their own. Because one of the things that I didn't um, really get out of my research is that pastors going best from other pastors. It's not that they don't hear us, but there is a way in which that another pastor is able to present the material, and they know that they're talking to someone that understands their experience and their struggles intimately so I think it's
0: very effective and so much Yeah, another thing you mentioned that was really important to relationship and how um, you know pastors are relational um, it, and, and it, it's wonderful to be able to use somebody in your own congregation to be able to handle some of these issues I was the same way in my um, previous um, congregation my pastor would really call on me when it was somebody so excited. Um, you know, like that's me when it was somebody who, um, you know, who needed help or who was schizophrenic and not handle certain issues um, and, 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 and it worked, you know, because you know he knew in his congregation, he knew who were the people who had, you know, um, psychiatry degrees or psychology degrees or, or, you know, or whatever it was so he utilized people that he knew but um, I guess, you know that's what we're trying, to, or I'm trying to struggle with, is to find out how can we, as you know, practitioners, create that relationship with past, to so where we feel, you know, that, that it's a back and forth, where it's a positive relationship. Because right now, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily positive. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, the example that you
3: just given with your pastor relationship, in the
1: that impact that impacted all the way that we preach
0: about um the, of yeah. the violence or Yeah, it definitely did. I mean and like I say there's a diversity of pastors and everybody has different backgrounds. That particular pastor he was very you know, educated he had a PhD in, um, in Christian education, but he also you know, he also was a substance abuse counselor in the past, so so he was pro um, mental health. So so when he spoke over the pulpit, it would be a little different. But, um, but yeah, I think if you have those relationships, it, it will change what you say over the
1: pulpit. And yeah. okay, so you, Michael, really, please, the significance of that is in another research project that I've done. And that one is not specific to this, but the information I gained from that is that what pastors are from the pulpit is not incurred. In the peace, and one of the significances of that is that interested in couples and partners living in the same house, married for long periods of time, and we're talking about more than ten years, or fifteen years, have different messages from the same pastor.
3: <laughs>
1: and I know that that comes from a place where the pastors try are trying not to disclose. Um, knowledge that they've got from members of the congregation when they're preaching, but because that information is presented in a soft way, it is coming across in this, you know, without the giving for, for people a peace to understand what they're saying specifically. It's very
3: important time that relationship. yes Yes. Uh, just a comment on that, because that would
2: depend on how invested the member is, uh, and in marriages, uh, it's, it's uh, 71 women and men in terms of the message, terms of their orientation,
3: uh,
2: and to um, that, depending on what cultural group we're talking about, how they get the cultural cues of the message through the message differently. But um, one, I, I don't know if this. is Question or not, but one thing that came to mind was um, the pastors that I have um, uh, studied uh, have tended to be multicultural themselves and, and not realize often how um, they have learned how to deal with members in their community which are of a particular cultural orientation that's different from the pastors because many pastors are educated or well-informed or come out from a middle class you, that's tough to say that background even if they're living in an impoverished community because uh, rarely pastors go to seminary rich um, and if they are some I mean <laughs> think but um, so there, there, is, there is kind of a latent skill and knowledge among pastors that they're unaware of that they have learned how to deal with communities and that gets to your question of training so it, it seems to me that it will be important to have an element in that training that um, can draw from those pastors in the context it's more than just language the faith language it's also the cultural uh, informant language That
3: they've
2: developed intuitively or explicitly. Uh, Let me disclose that this, uh, I I enjoyed your presentation and what you presented is something that's that's, uh, very dear to my heart. In fact, my dissertation was done on uh, something very similar to this, and I've also written on this subject. Now, you know, I'm also an ordained pastor, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, uh, seminary training. One thing I know is that seminaries, unless a pastor goes into seminary with the idea of becoming a pastoral counselor, then the only course you're going to take in seminary is kind of like Psychology 101. Mm-hmm. You know, having had NSW before I went into seminary, you know, I was far ahead of many of the uh, my fellow students. Now, you know, I, I uh, uh, started working on this back in the early nineties, and became very concerned. In fact, the title of my dissertation, you know, um, is "What Are the Factors That influenced African American church Churchgoers to Seek Help from Their Pastors." instead of traditional social service agencies. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, and, and what I did was, I, I researched just about every uh, black denomination that there is in America, you know, to look at this, because I knew that there were gonna be a wide range of theological views, a wide range of uh, denominational views, you know, and, and I came across a lot, a lot of this. The thing is, is that, is that you're right in that overwhelmingly pastors are not trained to provide mental health services. They're not, you know, if I hadn't had an MSW before I went to seminary, I would have been trained at it either. You know, you have to be intentional in going for that. Mm-hmm. Overwhelmingly, they believe that, or should I, say me say we, since I'm one of them, we believe that just by being called by God, that qualifies us to do this. You know, and I sat in meetings with them, talked to them, you know, so I know that this is the way many of us feel. Even when I'm sitting there, you know, sitting there you know, living, saying to them, well, you know, that's not quite the case. You know. The other thing I know is, that, you know is that a lot of mental health, a lot of mental health help does happen on Sunday morning when that pastor is preaching, yeah. and if he's preaching a this sermon. That's right. You know, the, truth, the truth is that a lot of our, a lot of the black preaching style has gotten lost over the years, yeah. and so oh yeah, you know the, in the you know, when you look at the history of the black preaching style, you know the, the black preacher tells three stories, he tells the biblical story, he tells the church story, and he tells or he or she tells their story. And so, and then they weave all three of those stories together in that sermon. A lot of it has gotten lost to the point where it's become an exercise in emotion and a lot of screaming and You know, so so the, the storytelling style has gotten lost, and so people are, you know, you know, we've gotten to the point where you know the preacher hasn't preached unless we're jumping up and down and running up and down the aisles and stuff. You know, so. So I do so what you're saying, and, and, and I agree with you, you know, that, 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 uh, that there has to be different ways of approaching this. When I did this training, again, uh, in the 90s, I would, when, I met with a group of, when I met with a group of traditional social service agencies, mm-hmm. and I met with a number of them throughout the state of Ohio, you know, say to the them is, you know, one of the things you have to do is to go to these pastors and say, we need your help. Not that we have something for you, but say that, you know, we need you to help us. And for those who could understand that, the other thing and I have to say this, you know, one the one thing that I've learned about about uh, our Caucasian brothers and sisters over the years, they have this attitude and I've dealt with a whole lot of them together. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I've lived in certain states, so we say that too. So I've dealt with them around the country. They believe that if they can't fix the problem, nobody can fix it. If they can't fix it, nobody can fix it. So, <clears throat> but for those who who accepted what I was telling them and saying, you know, you go to the pastor with, go, you go to, when you meet with the pastors, go to them with your head in your hand and say, we need you. You know, uh, for those that did that, it turned out real well. But the problem is is that for many of them is that long lasting relationship of building that continuing relationship like you we ladies were talking about. So so I hear what you're saying, you know, and I like it, you know, and it's and it's, and it's true even even in the even with my dissertation and the study that I did, more than eighty percent of the church people that I that I questioned say that they would go to their pastor first before mm-hmm. they would go to the traditional social services. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and despite the way that people's use mm-hmm. and um, going to churches has seems to be changing in this country it seems to be diminishing in some ways. Mm-hmm. that holds true that's been consistent across time and no matter how much um, attendance at church might be diminishing mm-hmm people are still going to their pastors first and even people from the community that don't go to church are going to pastors first. And very important. And I think another point that you mentioned that I just want to emphasize, I found that in my study as well, that pastors are sensitive to being disrespected. And if you approach them in a way that feels in any way disrespectful, then that shuts down an avenue and access to many people, especially if it's a large church in the community, so very important for us to remain, a process, um, remain in a process that is perceived as respectful and mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. That's very
0: really rich. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean we have a lot of work to do definitely. I mean we have a lot of work to do in terms of you know, trying to figure out the best ways to keep the relationship going. I think just one thing that you mentioned I has to do with humility is that definitely we have to be humble when we're coming in. You know, working with this particular population, we need to be humble. say so put, put our hat in our hand and go in there and ask mm-hmm. them for that. Knowing that they already are dealing with these issues, that we need them, you know, more than necessarily they need us. So, um, yes, I agree with
2: uh, and again, I'm talking about us again. We are sensitive. We are also arrogant. We're, we're very competitive with each other. You know, so and all, of the, all of those things have to be taken into account. It's a, it's, it's, it's a real hard job sometimes getting, getting, off, getting a, a number of us across the nominational line sitting in one room. Well, I'll tell you an interesting finding
0: of this second study I talked about with 204 pastors. I'll say it just briefly, but um, like when you looked at their education, pastors who had um, a little bit of community college but didn't have a degree, they were they they thought they knew more than the ones who had the degree, and they thought they knew more than the ones that had nothing. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting. So kind of like what you were saying, um, they're going on. Um, just a little
2: bit of information, and they're going, you know, forth pretty quick. You know, again, they feel like, you know, we feel like we've been called by God, so God will provide everything that we need. Yeah. Of course, they, you know, we have a tendency to overlook that one scripture in John when Jesus says, "I'm going to send the, I'm going to send the Comforter back to help you remember what I taught you." I mean. you know, they, don't, they don't, understand that if you haven't been taught anything, then the Holy Spirit can't get anything out. Yeah. You know, so. But that's, but that's, you know, that's the way, we think, you know. It's about the virtue of the calling. You know, God provides us with everything we
1: need. But the importance of the calling, the sensitivity, the arrogance, all of those factor into the culture
3: that is part of the community approach, mm-hmm. and it's important for us to be